welcome to Covenant Life Church, a ministry that is committed to helping you discover Christ's purpose for your life and leading you towards your best existence by providing you with meaningful ways to affect positive change in your world. Join Pastor Shane as he delivers a powerful and inspirational message for your life today. ...through the book of Ephesians, and the way that we have set this up for you, and this is right, is that throughout the entire book, what we see is this cosmic battle that's going on between the forces of darkness and the forces of God. And we talked about how it is that the Lord is wanting to heal us, to bring us into a greater revelation of who he is. That whatever has happened in your life, the, the fact that you are walking around the way that you are doesn't always have to be one of struggle or one of emptiness or devoid of the power and grace of God. Just because you've endured something that's been terrible doesn't mean that that has to be the defining moment of your life. The Lord's will is that his healing and his grace and his power would be the defining moment of your life. This morning we're in chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, open them up there, and we're going to be sharing for just a few minutes in this book, and I believe it's going to be life change for you because it's already been for me, and I'm excited to share this word with you. A few years ago, my brother-in-law, he was uh, playing a prank on me, and he grabbed my iPhone when I had logged in, and I had placed it down, and when I wasn't recognizing that he had picked it up, he picked it up and changed my passcode of my phone. So I didn't have access to my own phone. And then every time that the phone was sort of left there by itself, he would pick it up and he was posting divisive things on my social media account. You know, there'd be somebody that posted one thing and he put something sort of contrary just to sort of get them going and to frustrate them. He was telling everybody about how much I loved him as my brother-in-law and how great I thought he was. And it was going on and on and on until finally I realized what it was he was doing. The problem was is that I didn't have any access to my phone, so I couldn't change it. I had to sort of own it, that this is what this is until I could get access. So uh, I did get access back to my phone, but that's a story for another sermon. But I feel like sometimes in life that doesn't it feel like we have no control over what happens to us? And that what happens in our lives can sometimes derail us. It's like something has hacked our lives. The hopes that we want, the dreams that we had, get hijacked somewhere along the way. And what we're left with is something completely different than what it was that we aspired for. Our hope that we would achieve. The miracles that we hoped would come. This is sort of the background and the setting of what's going on here in this particular part of Scripture. Paul is talking to the Ephesian church, which is a group of Gentiles, that for all intents and purposes has always been outside of the promises of God. The Jews were God's chosen people, so if you were Jewish, great for you. But if you were a Gentile, you couldn't even go into the temple for worship. It wasn't a great thing for you to be a Gentile, particularly from a Jewish perspective. Always one step away from the covenant promise. Always one degree away from the hope that you have. Sure, you could stand on the outer courts and you could listen from a distance to what was going on on the inside. But you yourself, you're denied access to perhaps what you need most. And that is an encounter with God. 
So the Gentile church that Paul is writing to here, yes, in Ephesus with this letter again, would be passed along not just to this community, but to communities around that church and would be passed down for generations to churches. And today it's being passed down to us here at Covenant Life Church. He's writing this very personal letter. And I just want to read some of these verses for you, starting in verse 1. Paul has now set up this saying that God has broken down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. That he is making a new race of people called the church that would rise up. And now we're picking up that conversation there. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already re written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Members together of one body and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me though the work through the work of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me. To preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you which are your glory. This text is a weird interruption to the narrative that's been going on so far. He's talked about dividing walls of hostility coming down. He's talked about knowing our true revelation of how great God is, about that we are children. But in the background of the conversation, everyone in Ephesus knows, because they are close acquaintances with Paul, where Paul is. To this point, we don't have any reference of him, uh, uh, where he is, where he's writing this letter from, or what's going on. But in the background, everyone knows Paul's in prison. So the freedom that he's been talking about, the, the authority we have in Christ, suddenly seems to be called into question, and he knows it. And he interrupts the text with that verse, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then there's just this dash. It's like in this narrative, this nuance of, of phrase upon word and word upon uh, 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 punctuation. He is trying to communicate something, but it's this that's in the background. 
He's a prisoner. A prisoner of Rome? No. That's not the way that Paul sees it. He says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ. He recognizes that he is in this position for a very specific purpose. He knows that he has gone to Rome to preach the gospel to the most elite of the Roman uh, cadre, if you will. He is going to proclaim the gospel to the highest ranks of these people and even appealing to Caesar himself. That the gospel would not just reach those on the outskirts, but go to the highest level that everyone would have a chance to hear this word. As I said, they all know he's in prison. And there seems to be something hollow as the clank of the chains that bind him in stocks resonates. And he says, I, a prisoner of Christ. He reframes what it is that he's going through knowing that God has something to do through even the chains that he is wearing right now. And that is to proclaim this mystery Not just in spoken words that are heard and then forgotten, but to record them down for posterity, yes. But more than that, that the revelation of God and what God is trying to say to his church would bound forth from generation to generation to generation. Paul recognizes what is at stake. And his hope is that the people would understand that in Christ, now, all of the world, all of the church has access to something that formerly they did not. He calls it a mystery. A mystery of what God was going to do. That there's this cosmic battle that's going on. And Paul is behind enemy lines writing this dispatch to the church. And says this was all part of a grand plan. That God was going to come down and save the world through his son. It was a hidden mystery. And it's being laid out in, in plain words for us this morning. That we would get this mystery. That to gain access to God, we don't need to become more Jewish. We don't need to wear the Jewish garb. We don't need to go to synagogue for worship. We don't need to blow shofars. We don't need to do any of those things. We are not more favorable because we are a Jew. And I know that even now in the church that there's some tension here as people try to lean into this kind of faith, thinking that if they could just put on a little more Jewishness in their life, that somehow God is going to receive them better. Paul says that there could be nothing that's further from the truth. That in Christ, we all have access. Maybe for you, it's not becoming more Jewish. But there's a sense in which each of us are all trying to, in some ways, become more favorable. Aspiring to be maybe more holy so that God will love us more. Or to do something that God would appreciate. Maybe share our faith. Not that actions are not more favorable to God. But who we are as people could not be more favorable to God. You are wholly favored right now. Right where you're at. No matter the mess you've made of your life. No matter the decisions that you've made. That God loves you as a person and he's favored you. 
Now there's a distinction between that and the actions that we commit because every action isn't favored, but every person is. Do you see the distinction? And here is what Paul is trying to communicate. He wants this Gentile church to know, stop trying to be a poser and trying to live up to someone else's expectations. It's that same burden is upon so many. They are always trying to live up to someone's expectations, trying to live into something, and at the same time denying their uniqueness in Christ. And because of that, there's this sense in which each of us, all of us, are broken. Broken because we're trying to prove something. Frozen, broken because we're trying to gain access and maybe a different echelon in society. Broken because we're trying to have others favor us. But Paul's saying, you are already favored. And this mystery has been hidden for generations, but now I'm revealing it to you that it's never been about the Jews. In fact, if you read Isaiah, it says that the Jews' purpose was to be a light to the Gentiles, to make open an invitation for everyone to come. But for generation after generation after generation, there's been more division compounded upon more division. And we see it evidenced even in our culture as wars are raging everywhere. And this brokenness breaks our heart. As the poet Virgil says, in the nature of things, we live in a world of broken hearts. Broken down, beaten up, lied to. This was certainly the posture of what's going on in the Ephesian church. This is certainly the posture of what's going on today at Covenant Life Church. And yet God's purpose here is that we would have access, that we would be able to move into something and lay claim that for generations was hidden, but is now revealed that God is in fact up to something more grand in Christ than any of us have ever seen. And he is in chains now, not a prisoner of Rome, but of Christ to write this letter to you and to I this morning. Access. Access that lets you know that you are included in God's promises. All of them. You don't have to become anything to have access to them. You just have to live into the design that God has called you and formed you in. Live into the great purposes that God has. Some years ago, I was playing soccer and I was uh, on a club team and they sent invitation to club soccer players of a particular level to come to this special camp for people that were like me. And so they send us to this camp and we're there and the, the, we're the professional soccer players are teaching us some skills and things. And so while we were there, they put us in categories, much like you would in a backyard pick up football game. I want you, you, and you, and you. And they put all of the best players and gathered them so that they could grow together. And then there was a whole team that sent their players. And so that was one group. And then there was everybody else. Sadly for me, it was a little bit hard on me, but I was in the group of everyone else. The outcast, the downtrodden, the ones that they didn't think much of. And they put us on a team. To be the third, we call ourselves the scrubs because that's, in fact, what we were. 
So we were practicing together over a course of a couple of days, and then they decided about three quarters of the way through the camp that we would have a tournament, and that the scrubs would play the elite team, and then the scrubs would play the other club team, and then everybody would play each other in this round-robin tournament. So we get out there to play, and we're playing the first team on our uh, list of teams that we're going to play, and it's the elite team. There wasn't much hope for us. The expectation even of the coaches is that we would likely be blown out. There was only one problem. We didn't believe the hype. We believed that we could define our own destiny, and if we came together and formed a cohesive team, that we could win that game. And when we did, we beat the elite team 2-0. to zero. And we were super stoked, and we were all cheering. And then we followed it up the next day by beating the squad that had sent a whole team that had been playing together for years. And we were sitting high on the hog, as they say, so excited. And the reason was, is we didn't believe the lie about what they had said about us, that we were, in fact, scrubs. But the enemy said that same lie to each of you. He was saying it to the church in Ephesus that they were the scrubs, that they were excluded from God's promises, that they were somehow distant from it and didn't have the access to it. But Paul's point here is that your access to it is by virtue of Christ, not your heritage or not where you've come from or how many generations back you can count those that have been holy or in church. And it's interesting sometimes in pastoral circles because we have these conversations, I'm a seventh generation pastor. Or you hear it in the, the ways of life, you know, I have come from this family and we can track it back for this generation. Shut that mess up. Because I have just as much access as a 50th generation pastor. I have just as much access to the things of God and so do you. But the enemy would lie to you and say that you are wholly unworthy and that you can't have it because you're not somehow good enough. But what the scripture is saying and what God is revealing through this text, this mystery that's unfolding is that you, me, us, we all have access that there is no dividing wall of hostility, but more that Christ's work, this cosmic battle, is to heal the wounds that leave us somewhere, somehow excluded from God. And we all have that feeling when we feel like our prayers aren't being answered. Well, maybe it's me. Maybe it's that I'm not good enough. Maybe it's that God hasn't smiled on me. And it's what that does is deteriorates what we need most when we're in these situations, which is faith and trust that even when it's not working out right now doesn't mean it's not still working for our good. That just because we're struggling in this moment doesn't mean that it's going to be a perpetual struggle from here for forever. Instead, that God is in fact working in even the hard things that we go through to produce something in us that's going to transform our lives if we will trust that in fact he has given us access. Now the church in Ephesus is going to struggle a bit with this because of what it was that they were dealing with. When Christians were first proclaiming their faith, they were being flogged in the streets. Paul himself was run out of town because of proclaiming the gospel. It was not an easy place to do ministry. 
But according to historians, that this church grew and was the largest in all of this part of the world. By some estimates, over 10,000 strong in just a few years. What changed? What changed was, is this letter seeped into their soul and they recognized that they were wholly favored by God and they had access to something that they formerly believed that they didn't. My brother-in-law hacked my phone. He denied me access to what was rightly mine. And that's what the enemy does to each of us. And yet, he is more dubious than my brother-in-law. His family's just playing a joke. He intends to wreck your life. Not just for this moment, but for every moment after it. Denying you all the blessings and the grace and the good that God has for you. Thinking that you have to do something to earn it. This is important. Because it's something that we often miss. I had some friends some years ago who every other week would fast the entire week of food. They were praying for two and three hours a day, and I guess none of that's really wrong, except the motive was is that somehow that if they did that, that they were going to earn something more with God, as if they could somehow become more favorable by an action. What fasting and prayer should do for us is help us to know who we really are, not change the heart of God for us or the heart of God for what God wants to do. The good of the fasting and prayer is it changes us, not changes God's mind. We can't earn it. And yet that's what so many of us try to do, that if I just prayed a little harder, if I just worked a little bit more, if I just pursued with more of myself, then somehow God is going to favor me more. Again, actions themselves can be more favorable or less favorable, but who we are as people, never so. God has wholly favored you, which is good news. This mystery, as Paul says, is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are what? Heirs together with Israel, verse 6 says. Members together of one body and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. That all of the promises in Christ Jesus we have access to. What does that mean? Is that God's promises are good and God's promises are for you. Do you know in Scripture... There are over 3,000 promises that God has laid out for you. His word is good. And here's just a few of them. I just want to just, just go down a list and just refer to a few of these for you just real quick. The first promise is God's word never fails. Joshua 24, 3, 14. God promises eternal life for the believer. God promises forgiveness and a new heart. God promises that he will supply all your needs. Listen to that. All your needs, not just some, all. God promises healing. God promises wisdom. God promises to bring you peace. God promises to help you overcome temptation. God promises protection. But somehow, when we live in the world, one of the great plans of the enemy is to make us believe that we don't have claim to these things. That we can't trust God's word for ourselves. 
But God is not a man that he should lie. When he makes a promise, he is waiting and longing for people to lay claim on what it is that he has declared. That in Christ, we now have access. We don't have to become more Jewish. We don't have to try to become more favorable. We already have it. The only thing that we must have is the faith to believe that these things are true for me. I could offer somebody money right now. If I had my wallet, I would do it. But I could offer somebody money right here. Who wants this money? And everybody could sit there. Is that available for me? But the first person that comes up and grabs it could take it and it be theirs. But so often that's what we miss is that these things are God's like this. Who's coming? Who's coming? Who will come get this? And we're all trying to figure it out ourselves. We've got a headache. We reach for the Advil. Sometimes that's God's answer to our prayer. I'm just saying. Sometimes it is. <clears throat> but why isn't our first look to God and using godly wisdom and all of these things, these promises working together to lead us to the truth that God has and that all of these things are available to us? Why do we feel like we're somehow denied them? I think it's because this world just really runs over us and what is acceptable and what is good is determined by culture. Culture tells us how we should dress. They're telling us the way that we should think about morality. They're telling us the way in which we should live. But God's saying none of those things are what actually make you favorable. You're favorable because I made you. You're favorable because I have chosen you to be a part of my creative purpose here and now. And so this mystery is no longer that you are divided or excluded from these things. But if you let it, the world will run you over and make you believe that those things are actually true. Some years ago, there was, a, I guess it wasn't too long ago, but there was a young girl that my daughters were playing with in our neighborhood. Her story was a hard one. She showed up one day and it was Freezing outside, it was probably one of the cold days that we have. It's probably 15 degrees, so it's an evening. She came in, and she just has this sweatshirt on. She says, I'm cold. And he's like, well, where's your coat? She says, I don't have one. Mom can't afford one. and I, I just, I don't want to bother her about it because she feels bad enough. I said, well, what's going on? And she started to tell her story. She said, my mom has been an addict for as long as I've known her She's in recovery now, but as a young girl, I'd walk around the house and I'd pick up hypodermic needles and we had someone that would give me a dollar for everyone that I'd find just to try to keep me safe from being poked or stabbed by one of these things that were just laying haphazardly all across the floor and then across the yard. Dad ran away long ago and I've had no relationship with him. My wife and I were taken with her story and verified it was true. She was living with an aunt across the street who loved her and would provide some things, but she herself was struggling and couldn't provide. And so most nights she would eat dinner with us. She'd come into our home and she'd share meals and we'd share love. We bought her a coat, of course, and other clothes. And something about wearing these new clothes changed her sense of dignity about herself. She felt that she was loved. When you could see her walking through the neighborhood, her head was a little high just by changing her clothes letting her know that she was loved and favored. We had the privilege of praying with this young girl to receive Christ. 
This girl that had seen more life and had been through more pain than any of us could imagine, walking herself through abusive situations. She gives Christ an opportunity to meet her. And I'll never forget, we're sitting around the living room one day and she asks us, would it be all right if I called you and Miss Jamie mom and dad? What she was really after was just this feeling of belonging that she didn't have to be outside, that she could be in a functional family and live life with people that argue and love and, and, and can swell together around meals and conversation and enjoy what it is that's, that should have been already hers and that's access to being wholly loved as a child. When Christ uses the words heir, that's what he means is that you are his child. You are in the family lineage. You now have access. So now why then are you living as if you don't? Political pundit some years ago was sort of assessing some of the candidates that were uh, trying to become president or some of the political leaders that we'd had in our government. And he says, you know something? When Bill Clinton walks into the room, he wants to be liked by everyone. When Al Gore walks into the room, he wants to know, he wants everyone in the room to know that he's right. When George W. Bush walks into a room, he wants everyone to know that he's in charge. And then he made this great analysis of that and said, but that's how we all walk into the room, sort of hiding behind the fact that we're insecure and that that room won't accept us unless they feel one of those ways about us. That's a strong statement, but that's way different than the way that Christ walks into a room. When Christ walks into the room, I guess he walks in and says that this room is wholly loved and favored and probably seeks out the outcast and the one that knows that least and goes up to them and says, you know, I delight in you. This is the truth that Paul is trying to communicate through the power of the Holy Spirit to the church of Jesus Christ to know that we are loved this kind of way and that we have access. And more, that we are overcomers. We are overcomers because Christ has overcome for us. Listen to Paul's words, verse 8. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. What is he getting at? Well, they, like us, know his backstory that Paul was a murderer of Christians. He was one that opposed the way of God. He was the one that should, if anybody should be denied access to the things of God, it should be the one that in this day and age may have opposed that work more than anyone. And he knows that he's the least and he's the least worthy. But this one that is least worthy is recognized that in the person of Christ that God has made him worthy. And nowhere in scripture can you ever find the words that any of his creation are not worthy. And yet we sing worship songs that say we're not. We utter words that Christ himself never declared. In fact, he says it like this, that while you were sinners, I died for you then. When you felt like you were the least worthy, I called you holy worthy and holy good and someone that I care about. You are my treasure. You are my love. Verse 10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be, listen, made known to all the world. No. That's not what he says. 
that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. <laughs> that we as believers are bowing up like we're getting ready to pounce and fight against the principalities and powers and all the lying, deceiving spirits that would try to oppress the work of God that's within us. That would try to stifle our belief in the one that has given us access to every single one of his promises. And has declared to us the goodness of who we are as his creation. Holy, acceptable, Jew, Gentile, makes no difference. All of it God has accepted in him. All of it. And he wants us to rage against the powers and the principalities and those spirits that would lie to us and declare that what is true is not true by trying to force us into becoming something we were never called to be. We don't have to become something to receive this. We don't have to live into some other kind of hope, but this hope according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in him and through faith in him, listen to that, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. That the pivot point here is faith. Trusting that in fact God has done this work and it's been hidden for generations. You can imagine all of the demonic principalities and powers and rulers in the high places that thought that they were running things. And this mystery that the scripture says had been hidden from them has now been revealed in Christ. And, and, and I can just imagine all of this going on on a cosmic level. Oh, you think you've won? You think when you put me on the cross that it's over? Watch this. Boom, resurrection happens. And when it does, he doesn't just raise himself, but raises you and I with him in the eternal glory and the eternal hope of his power and mercy and revelation so that all of the promises of God are what? Yes and amen. Every single one of them are yours and you have access to them. Don't believe the lies that would oppress you. Don't believe the principalities and powers that would war against that truth. Know it. Paul wants you to know it. The Spirit of God wants you to know it. And this pastor wants you to know it. That this is yours and you have access. I'd like the worship team to come back up. This is... The truth and the love that we have from our Lord. That every single one of us are wholly favored. And God delights in you. Delights in me. We know that every action that we have committed is not favorable. God does favor actions. It's true. But not so that we would curry more favor with him. Just that the more we get to know him, the more we reflect this truth that we declare this manifold wisdom, this word manifold means this multi-layered wisdom, this beautiful truth that's revealed in different shades of beauty and glory that's bounding forth even now as I preach this word that God loves you like that. And yet we miss this all the time. One of my good friends, 
told me a, a story when I met him. Was sharing about his life. He said, for the longest time, I didn't feel loved or favored. I thought God hated me, and because I thought God hated me, I hated God. I grew up in a foster home, was abused in every way that I could. My own parents didn't think enough about me to love and to provide me for me. In fact, they left me and my five brothers and sisters in a tent in North Florida. And the authorities found us at ages five, four, three, two, and one, living by ourselves and had been living in that way for over five days. Trying to find food, forage the best we could. He said, I'm surprised that we lived through it. Five-year-olds caring for infants and four-year-olds caring for one-year-olds. Not the way that one feels favored. It's about the age of 11, and I was so overrun with this feeling of worthlessness, and I said, what's the point? What's the point living in this if... God really loved me, then why am I here? An electrician had been working in the house that day and he had left the electrical panel open. He said he woke from his bed in the middle of the night and says, today I'm going to end it all. And he reaches to go and grab the electrical wire that the electrician told him to keep away from. He says he doesn't know how, but he woke the, up the next morning in his bed. He says, I don't know how I even got there. I didn't want to live. I didn't want to walk this way and live through this life anymore. It was not what I wanted. And it's not the kind of life that I have. And he goes, and then finally, he goes, another family adopted me in as a foster child. But instead of beatings, they gave me hugs. Instead of cursings, they told me who I was in Christ. I really had a hard time receiving it because up until that point, when someone was being nice, it was just to try to coerce me later to do something terrible. So I didn't really trust them. Because one night, I was at a service, and my foster father was teaching. It was just me and a bunch of other kids and youth, and he says, if you want to go to the game room, I just want you to spend some time in prayer, but you can't go out of here. And he said, I didn't want to pray. He goes, but something compelled me. And he goes, I don't even know how I got there. But the next thing I know, I'm weeping at an altar. But it wasn't the weeping and the crying that was so impactful. It was God telling me how holy, loved, and favored I am. Despite what the abuse had said to me, despite what my parents had tried to impose upon me, despite what the world around me and the way that I had been picked on by even my own peers had impacted me, that God had wholly favored me. It's hard to believe. But I took something away that day and I just began to just put some of it into practice that God had only favored me. And before long, I 
those scars and those wounds became, they began to heal and became scars and those scars are now the testimony of the grace of God that has met me over and over again in my life. The one that had no father is now a father. The one that had been broken is now spending his entire life working to heal others. Each of us have a story. You have one, I have one. The enemy would love to wreck your life from here forward. But it's up to you whether or not you're going to give him access or you will lay claim to God's access to a whole other way of living. The word of the Lord has gone forth this morning and he wants you to partake of his promises. Those places that you have felt denied from, he wants to invite you in. He wants to draw you into the mystery and the wonder of a life that is wholly acceptable and loved by him because he gave it to you. That's why Paul points back to creation. He's the one that created it all, so it's his. You're his, and he loves you, and he accepts you, and he longs for you to know that you are heirs to all of his promises. There's nothing that could deny you from that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray. Pastor Shane of Covenant Life Church.